good to see you. As you uh, may know, our pastor is out on, on a 35th wedding anniversary trip, something that's been planned for several months, even before he was sick. And so all the grandkids, which really is the most important thing, and all the children have gotten together, and so they're celebrating. I know you'll be in prayer for him as we look forward to him coming back next Sunday. Well, I want to just make you aware of my favorite childhood book, and it may bring you uh, some information about who I am as a person, but my favorite book was Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. And the story opens the night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind or another. His mother called him Wild Thing. And Max said, I'll eat you up. And so he was sent to bed without eating anything. You know the story. Max falls asleep, begins a dream of a faraway land where he's the king of all of his monster friends. And there his monster friends roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and so on. And of course, Max realizes that that's not the best place for him. Dreams of going back home. And so he does that. He wakes up from that dream to find dinner at the side table next to his bed. Truth is... We all have a little wild thing in us, a desire to rebel, a desire to become our own king, a desire to create a world where no one else but ourselves is the authority. There's no algebra, there's no angry bosses, there's no one telling you what you have to do. You can do whatever you want to do. And like Max, we're human. We're human in that there's something in us that wants to act out. And Paul in the New Testament describes that something as the flesh. And it's crazy how often we can go from praising Jesus in one moment to cursing someone else in the next. That that we can be serving him on a mission trip in one week and the next week fall to a significant temptation in our life. That we can be encouraged in our faith, we can grow with God, but then also find ourselves deep neck deep in sin and a bad habit. So how does that happen? How how do we as a people of God, how do we as individuals find ourselves in rebellion so easily? And what does Jesus think about our ability to rebel so quickly? How do we move from rebellion and into a life-giving, redemptive relationship with Christ Jesus? Well, this morning we're going to continue our series, Encounters with Jesus. I'm going to invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read uh, 20 through 25 here in just a moment. And as you're finding that, I want to remind you that this story is not uncommon. We've heard this. We understand this. But it's a biblical version of a Benedict Arnold, a traitor among the troops who rebels and betrays its leader. This encounter with Jesus, it's not like any encounter we've had thus far in our series. This encounter with Jesus is a bit dark, and it's a bit tough, and its uniqueness draws us in because I think in us all we can relate to a little bit of who Judas is and what Judas is about. So read with me in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 20. The scripture says, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, 
He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. This morning, I want us to see and just kind of understand who Judas is. And how we, as a people of God, might relate to him. Three things this morning that I want us to unpack that are found right here in this text. In his betrayal, Judas was subtle, not straightforward. He was subtle and not straightforward. Now, Judas Iscariot is one of the 12 disciples. He has spent the last three years following Jesus. He's been an an eyewitness to the miracles and the teachings and the ministry of the Son of Man. That's who Judas is. We also know that that money was very important to Judas, that he was the, the money holder for all of those disciples and in the ministry of Jesus. Money is so important to him. If you know the scripture, a few verses earlier, he has gone to the chief priest and made a deal that he will turn in Jesus for only 30 pieces of silver. The scholars tell us about 30 pieces of silver. It's about six weeks worth of salary. Money was valuable to our friend Judas. Now the story continues here at this Passover meal that Jesus confronts him. Judas leaves. He goes to the chief priest where he made the deal and collectively that mob go and find Jesus later in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus is arrested. He is beaten. He is put on trial. And he is crucified. This is a horrible kind of story. But we as believers see this story and understand its need for we know that coming after This betrayal is the cross of Christ, our ability to have a relationship with God, that Jesus through the cross puts on the sin of all humanity and that all who believe in him and trust in him repent of their sins. They will have redemption and the eternal life that God offers through his son, Jesus. But honestly, this story is a little different. If you know much about who Judas is, you would say that this text is rather uncharacteristic of Judas. That doesn't make much sense. But here's what we know about Judas. Up to this point, up to this season, these few days, Judas, very much like the other disciples. It's not like a crime podcast where you know the villain and you're hearing different things that the villain does to share his story. For up to this point, there's not much that Judas does that would lead us to believe that he is the villain, that he is going to betray. Judas is somewhat squeaky clean. Nothing in his life or his ministry had been characterized to be a series of betrayals, one bigger than the next. And isn't that just it? That rebellion grows. That little indiscretions in our life turn into something greater, turn into something greater, turn into something greater. And they begin to morph from what was small into large, life-altering, moral failures. The reality is just as Judas, so is rebellion, subtle and often not straightforward. There's only a few indications that, that, G, that Judas is on his way to mutiny with his leader. There there's a, seems to be a lack of real relationship with Jesus. 
that if you read through who Judas is and, and find the accounts of the disciples, you don't see much of a relationship at all with Jesus. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they wrote the Gospels, when they list the 12, they list the 12 in basically the same order with a few variances. But most of the time, they list Peter, James, and John as the first three disciples. And we know those disciples to be the disciples whom Jesus loved. They were the closest to Jesus. Judas is always listed last. And not only that, he's always listed last and always identified as the one who betrays Jesus. How would you like that? To be identified as your worst act in your life? That's exactly what happens here. But this order is important. All of Scripture is important. And the order and lists, there certainly is meat and potatoes in those kinds of realities. This list indicates that, that Judas has very little relationship with Jesus. In fact, there's only three documented brief dialogues between Judas and Jesus. And this is one of them. And it's simply a question and a one-answer response. What's interesting about this, this lack of relationship with Jesus, certainly kind of dovetails with Judas's problem with greed. The scripture reminds us in John chapter 12 that there is this unique experience that Jesus has with the woman at Bethany where she anoints Jesus' feet with an expensive perfume and ointment. And instead of Judas receiving that as an act of worship, he's worried that they could have helped so many poor people with the amount that they could have sold off that ointment for. And so Judas... It's not so concerned about the poor. We know his heart, as we've seen the end of the story, he is concerned about the greed and, and how much money he might be able to profit from the sale of that perfume. His issues were subtle. There's nothing up to this point radically straightforward that would indicate he is going to be a traitor among them. I'm reading a, a book, John David Tripp wrote a new book called Lead, and it's about the leadership qualities that should be found in the leaders of the church, whether they're pastors or lay people. And one of those qualities, as you can imagine, is the quality of character. And, and he warns the reader about looking for subtle shifts in our values that progressively change your behavior. And he asks the question, are we closing our eyes to character deficiencies and he warns us that they will give birth to greater failures. That great men of God fell from great positions with radical failure, even though they had influence, because they didn't pay attention to those subtle shifts in their life. Those, those catastrophic falls from great influence, they didn't trip. Rather, they were years and years of overlooking little things that begin to grow and morph into bigger things. Things like anger, things like an inappropriate glance, things like unchecked pride, or even substance abuse. If we were to take time and think about different men and, and women of God that we know that have fallen from their influence because they had a moral failure, we could look back at their life and see these little things grow into giant life-altering moral failures. James writes about this idea of how sin morphs itself. Scripture says in James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it gets conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
the reality and the nature of rebellion and sin seems to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we need to think about just this reality of who Judas is. That up to this point, he's just like the others. But here, the subtleties are not as straightforward. But all of a sudden, he becomes somebody that God did, that Judas did not need to become. And he began to become this traitor, began to betray Jesus. And in this process of bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Sometimes we think about our own life. And I would just warn us that it's very pretty interesting that sometimes we think, am I going to serve in the choir in one day and then go out and, and kill the villagers the next? Probably not. But what in your life are there shifts that you've not paid attention to? A little change in your behavior. It seems that you're a little more quick to anger or you find yourself not being as, as forthright or honest about a certain situation or an area in your life that you once were. When you're not paying attention to those kinds of behavior changes, you might find yourself in the road or on the road to rebellion. So I beg the question, what small issue in your life are you not paying attention to? Just as a spark can cause a forest fire, the same is true with us. What in your life are, are you struggling to be consistent in? Do you find yourself entertaining an inner rebellion that you've not dealt with? What small thing can threaten your marriage, can threaten your livelihood, can threaten your character and your integrity. We need to really think about where in my life am I not in check as I should be. Is it gossip? Is it lust? Is it greed? Is it self-control? Is it anger? Is it entitlement? And I would just challenge us as a body, for those who are in the room, for those who are online, that we've got to stop justifying our subtle shifts so that our behavior would match better the glory and the wonder of who Jesus is. If we don't, it's a dangerous road that leads to rebellion. Secondly, this morning, in his betrayal, Judas was surrounded but not surrendered. He was surrounded but not surrendered. Verse 20 says the disciples were eating together and it's something they would have done hundreds of times before. But today, today is a celebration as they experience the Passover. As we remind ourselves, the Passover is a celebration of, of the exodus from Egypt and the Israelites' freedom from slavery. And, and it's somewhat of a formal setting. There is a, a ritual to take place through the Passover meal. But it's certainly celebration. And in celebration, Jesus becomes very serious and, and almost dark. Several years ago, I was on staff as a student pastor, and we had a, a brand new pastor of discipleship. Back in those days, we called him minister of education, and, and he came on, and he was wanting to bolster our Sunday school and wanted to encourage people to be a part of what Sunday school was about, and so he got an idea uh, that people were very familiar with, and you might even recall, in World War I, there was a poster that came out of Uncle Sam pointing his finger and saying, we want you. And so this certain minister of education decided, I'm going to use that theme, and I'm going to say, we want you to join Sunday school. And that was a little cheesy. This is back in the late 90s, right? So it wasn't great, but it was kind of working. And so we began to understand, see these posters up on the wall. And what's interesting about that was we all kind of scratched our heads a bit. In the West, in America, we think of Jesus as somebody who's got light skin, He's got great facial features. He's got really conditioned, shiny, long hair. He's always smiling. But was, what was on the poster was not nice Jesus. In fact, we on staff, we called him angry Jesus is what we called him. 
He had angry eyebrows. He had this menacing face. And we were like, I don't think anyone wants to join Sunday school right now. So it's kind of an angry Jesus face moment. In this celebration Passover, Jesus takes a turn in the conversation. And he says this, one of you will betray me. Now, Jesus had predicted this betrayal long before this moment. John chapter 6, verse 64 says, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. A few verses later in John 6, verse 70, Have I not chosen you, speaking to the twelve, yet one of you is a devil. Verse 23 of our text this morning Scripture says the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. You see, this betrayal, Jesus is aware that it's about to happen. But more than that, it has been prophesied in the Old Testament that it would happen. Psalm chapter 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The prophet Zechariah speaks of the worth of the Lord being only 30 pieces of silver. So, so Jesus is aware. He understands that prophecy has been spoken and it's about to be fulfilled. He understands that he will be betrayed and he understands the betrayer. But the disciples don't understand either. Jesus says this, verse 22, they said they were full of sorrow. And they began to ask, is it I, Lord? One by one, is it I, Lord? Now, the grammatical construction in the original language is kind of unique here. It, it really should be translated, is it it isn't me, is it? A question that's full of doubt. And there can't really be a positive response to that. Here's what the disciples were thinking. It's going to be me. No one pointed the finger at anybody else. They didn't expect anybody else in the room to betray him but their own self. The truth is, one of them was not surrendered to the mission like the others were. Judas, surrounded but not surrendered. Surrounded by the disciples, surrounded by the mission, surrounded by Jesus, but not surrendered to the mission of God. We begin to take this understanding and think that Judas must have acted just like the other disciples up to this point. No one suspected him. It's one of the things that makes betrayal so difficult, isn't it? That it's so unsuspecting. That among our own, there are those who do not believe. That there are those around us who will betray us. We're not ready for it. And it could be even in this place or online that there are people in our Sunday school, people in our Bible study groups, people in our worship services who are surrounded but not surrendered. And it begs the question, what would cause Judas to be surrounded but not be surrendered to the mission. Most scholars believe that Judas probably followed Jesus because he was hoping to benefit from an association with him, that, that Jesus, who was proclaiming to be the Messiah, would, would bring forth a political reign, and those disciples who were with Jesus would somehow benefit from that political reign. But it was obvious at this point in Jesus' ministry that he had no plans to overthrow the government, that his plans were only to die and give himself up as a ransom for many. And so Judas, probably realizing that, that Jesus was not really the Messiah, thinking that the Messiah truly wouldn't die, the Messiah, the true Messiah, would take over, but that was certainly not the case. So therefore, Judas, having experienced the Messiah that he didn't want, 
gave him over and betrayed him. And it's hard for us to kind of read the Gospels, thinking all that Judas must have seen, all that Judas must have experienced, and yet he still is not surrendered. And I think about our body, and I think about our, our church family, and I think that there may be some in our room, some in our midst, some in our Sunday school and our Bible study groups who are just in it for association, that they find a personal gain just to be associated with the church. Maybe it's good for business, or maybe it's good for their their identity, or, or maybe they're just here because the spouse is wanting them to be here, but they have no passion or desire to really surrender. Surrounded every week, but not surrendered to the mission of God. Trying to benefit from an association with Jesus rather than believe in the salvation of Jesus. And, and many of you are caught in rebellion and surround yourself with the gospel, but you're not surrendered to it. You're not allowing it to really impact your life, change your behavior, change how you think, change how you spend your money, change your relationships. And I would just challenge us to think about that together, that so often we could be surrounded but not surrendered. And so this morning, I would encourage you to think, how and what ways can I surrender to the mission of God? I'm, I'm here, I'm involved, I'm associated but it doesn't mean that you're committed. Let's, let's encourage one another. Let's hold each other accountable. Some of us in this room need to have tough conversations with other people in the room. For you're noticing that maybe they're surrounded, but they're not surrendered. Some of us in the room need to be honest about where we are in our life with, with Jesus and who Jesus is to us. Because we can be present in the service, present in a Bible study group, but our hearts far away. We see this in Judas. Judas certainly lived this out in his life. This morning, number three, in his betrayal, Judas was not supportive. Excuse me, Judas was supportive, but not submissive. He was supportive, but not submissive. So for three years, Judas supports the work of Jesus, but he doesn't submit to him as Savior. He, he likes the idea, but he's not submitting to the idea that Jesus is for him. Most scholars believe that, that Judas was never a believer, that he wasn't a, a true believer of Jesus. Did he follow Jesus? Yes. But as you consider the fruit of his life and the action of his life and his lack of relationship with the Savior, we can't say that he understood Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the scripture alludes to this in verse 24 of our text, reminds us, scripture says, Jesus says, but woe to the man who says the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's an allusion to the reality of what Judas is about to experience. He's about to experience eternal separation from God. He's about to experience hell. It would be better for him not to be born because he's about to experience something incredibly difficult. Not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. And this reference would not have been made if Judas had known Jesus as Savior. John 17, 12, Jesus says, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None of has been a loss except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The scripture reveals the reality that there is a prophecy that would be fulfilled, but there is one who is doomed to destruction. And you're only doomed to destruction if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you've never accepted him as Christ and as Lord. And certainly in this case, that is 
Judas. And all his time with Jesus, Judas never submits to Jesus as Lord. Judas is for Jesus, but he is not of Jesus. I hope and pray that's not the case for any of us. That we're not just for him, we're not just supporting him. But I pray that we've submitted our life to him. That he is our Lord and our Savior. Judas seems to elevate his own status with Jesus and downplay the importance of Jesus. Let's look at the text again. Seems to downplay the importance of Jesus and elevate his own self. We see that, that Judas was sitting close to Jesus. Now, sometimes we think about the Last Supper or the Passover meal in this context, and we think of the Da Vinci's Last Supper picture and this long table. Truthfully, the reality is there probably is somewhat of an oval table or a U table. And, and what happens in the shape of that, that there's a, a seat of honor, there's a guest of honor. So Jesus is sitting at the seat of honor. And next to him, to his left, is Judas. And he's sitting at the, the place of honor, the seat of honor, uh, the guest of honor with Jesus. What's happening here is that Judas is not that close to Jesus. That of all the disciples, Judas probably, though he's listed last, shouldn't be next to Jesus in this place of honor. But he is. Jesus leans over and, and tells him. Has this conversation with him. And in other gospels, there, there's a, a portion of the Lord's Supper, of, excuse me, the Passover meal, where, where Jesus actually dips a morsel of bread in the cup. And the scripture says, whoever I hand this morsel over, it will be him who betrayed me. Here in Matthew, it's the one who dips with me. The idea being that there's a closeness. He's not across the table. He's not around the way a bit. He is right next to him. And what's interesting about that is that Judas is elevating his place with Jesus, yet he has no relationship with him. Sometimes we think we are trying to look good in front of others when we've not done the work with Jesus. Jesus, to the rest of the disciples, is Lord. Is it I, Lord? But here in our text this morning, Judas asks the question, is it I, Rabbi? Significant difference. Jesus is Rabbi, yes, but he's so much more. To the disciples, because of that relationship, he was Lord. But to Judas, he's just a good guy, just a rabbi. Judas is downplaying Jesus' authority, Jesus' position, and Jesus' purpose. Supportive, but not submissive to the Messiah. One of our favorite board games at my house is Monopoly. Um, in fact, we, we shorten it. We call it Monops. And you guys can take that if you'd like. But every kid that plays, uh, as we have all four kids that play, uh, has a strategy. And, it, and it's kind of fun to watch. I'm always the banker because in real life, I am the banker. Caleb is, uh, he, he's a guy who buys everything. I mean, as soon as he, he's buying it, he buys everything he can as quickly as he can. Gavin likes all the railroads. He wants all the utilities. Sawyer is a savior. He's, he's like, ah, I'm going to save my money. Lily is very selective as to what she buys. And as her father, as she enters high school, I'm very grateful that she is selective. What happens at our table when we play Monops are side deals. Do you know side deals? Kind of bend the rules a little bit. Someone's got a property that you want. And you're like, hey, I'll buy that from you. But I want immunity, which means if I land on that property, I don't have to pay your rent. 
So there's all these side deals happening. And I'm trying, because I'm also the peacekeeper among our children as we play Monopoly. And I want to be aware of what side deals are happening. Some side deals are complex. Some side deals are just property for property. And it's just a trade because everyone has an idea that they need all the properties to put hotels on to, you know, control the power of the universe, right? And we, we love that. And we support the idea that everyone's getting what they want. You can purchase what you want. You want a side deal, that's fine. But here are the rules to that. Until you land on a property that you gave away. You're like, I'm not paying rent. You're like, no, you got to pay rent. I'm not paying rent. I gave you that. The idea is I'm supportive, but I'm not going to surrender to that. I, I'm not going to submit to that. I don't want to pay. I don't want to sacrifice my money. I gave you that. And so there, all of a sudden it becomes a little conflict at our house when we play Monops. Rebellion works the same way. We might in this room or online say, hey, I support godly things. I support moral things. But I don't want to submit to them because that may cost me something. I may have to sacrifice my comfort. I may have to sacrifice some career moves. I may have to sacrifice my own time, my own resource. Rebellion tells us that it's okay to support and not Submit. And it's just not true. How do we apply this this morning? We've got to be careful not to elevate ourselves in the context of Jesus. Sometimes it's, it's easy for us to kind of showcase all the things we've done to support godly things or even support the work of the church. That, that we're serving, we're giving, we're helping. And so the spotlight is on ourselves and not the Lord. Let me ask you a question. And, and I was kind of working through this uh, this week and this question kind of got to me as I was thinking about it. Do people know you for giving God glory or do they just know you for all the work you've done for the Lord? Do people know you for giving God glory or do they just know you for all the work that you've done for the Lord? Both are good, but one is greater. The challenge for us is to give God glory, that it's not about us, not about what we've done or what we can do, but it's about giving God the glory that he deserves. So let's be honest be honest with how you view Jesus, but be honest with how you relate to Jesus. Is he just a rabbi, just a good guy, or is he Lord? Have you submitted to the work of Jesus? Have you literally given your life to him? Have you received the work of the cross, confessed sin, repented, and received his grace? How you view Jesus is radically important as you consider where you are on the road to rebellion. See, Judah supports the work by being the accountant for the group. But he never submits to the saving grace of the Savior. And my guess is this. If Judas in this moment, as Jesus calls him out, if Judas would have asked for forgiveness and repented of his sin, I believe with all my heart, Jesus would have forgiven him. Knowing what Judas's motive were, knowing what his heart was like, knowing that he wanted Jesus dead, Jesus still forgives him. That's the grace of God. And so it could be that you're in this room feeling a little guilt. It's not just the humidity that's getting you hot this morning. You may be thinking, well, Jesus can't forgive me for that. Jesus is not going to do those things for me. I would just remind you, the Bible says that he came to seek and save that which is lost and his desire is for all men to be saved. And so I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus, but if you don't know who Jesus is, you don't have that relationship with him, and you think that you're too bad 
You're too far down the road. You're not good enough for Jesus. I would just remind you that his cross is sufficient for even you. The road to rebellion lacks a sense of submission. So submit. Let today be your day of salvation. Let today be your day of redemption. How do we apply all of this this morning? I would just say a couple things today. I refer to Judas as a betrayer and not necessarily a rebel. I believe to be uh, rebellious means you have to rebel from something. And I don't believe that, that Judas had that. He didn't have Jesus. Therefore, he couldn't rebel from something. He was just playing the game. Truth is, some of you are betraying Jesus. You know what Jesus looks like. You have an idea of what it looks to to act like a godly person, but you are truly not one of his children. You're associated, but you're not submitting. Every time you sin, you are betraying a perceived loyalty. And today, I would just tell you, today is your day where you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to worry about what people might think anymore. You don't have to come in here and be somebody you're not anymore. Today, Jesus can change your life. The other truth is some of you are in rebellion. You know who Jesus is. You have something to rebel from. Sin, little sin, has crept into your life and now it's medium sin or big sin. And you're pretending to have it all together, but truthfully and honestly, you don't. And beneath all the layers, you're not walking with Jesus like you should. And probably you're walking with Jesus in some ways but not in all the ways he's asked you to. And I would just tell you in a moment of transparency, I find uh, I rebel when I'm really prideful, when when I think I've got it all together, when I don't need anyone's help, when when I've got it covered. I would just tell you an antidote to that is ask for help. Be open to receiving other people's help in your life. I rebel when I'm prideful. I rebel when I'm tired, when I'm worn out and I let my guard down. Take a nap. That's right, I said it. Go to sleep. Hey, you know this little device we have on our our hands late at night? Put it down. Rest well. And in that rest, I find that when I'm rested, I don't find that I'm so rebellious. I rebel when I'm tired. I'm going to challenge you to rest. I'd also say I rebel when I'm not actively protecting myself. When I'm in accountability with somebody else, when I'm not being honest with some people. When they're asking me, how am I doing? Not really being honest about that. Or when they get deeper. Hey, what are you struggling with right now? And I often say, I'm good. That's not being honest. Get honest. And it will help you with your rebellion as a believer. It may be big rebellion that you're hiding. There may be small little rebellions that are ready to explode in your life. You want to run from rebellion? I would just challenge you. Realize you're at war. That the flesh in you is at war in you. And guess what? It's ready to fight. The question is, are you? When we fight against sin in our life, we will find ourselves running from rebellion. When we give in to sin in our life, we are on the road to rebellion. Realize not only you're at war, but you're also under grace. Back to Monopoly. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, I'm under grace. I can do what I want. I can ask God for forgiveness and he'll forgive me. That is true. But I would challenge you to know that that grace cost you something. That that grace cost Jesus' life. 
And as we as believers, we're not bound, we're not slave to that sin any longer. In fact, Romans chapter 6 verse 14 tells us that we are no longer under the law, therefore we are not bound or under sin, but we have grace and we are under that grace. So since the freedom is so close to you, you've just got to receive it. Either way, what you need isn't some preacher telling you what you've done wrong. It's not some self-help book or another podcast or another Bible study. What you need this morning is just Jesus. As believers, what you need this morning is what you've always needed. It's just Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says we're no longer condemned by our sin. That we have freedom in Christ. Let me tell you, don't live condemned But live, if you're under that conviction, find yourself in confession that you might find and live in the concession of God's grace and his freedom. You don't get that anywhere else but just Jesus. Rebellion grows. Let us be a people of God who consider sin for sin and realize how dangerous it is and are willing to go to war with it under the banner of grace, that we would find ourselves submitting, we would find ourselves in a reality that we're not trying to live these subtle shifts in life, but we're straightforward with God leading us and we're giving him all the glory.